Chapter 39 that Mike just read is the last chapter of the first major section of the book of Isaiah. We've been studying through the book of Isaiah here for a number of months, and uh, that chapter 39 uh, ends that first major section of the book, which had kind of as its theme the theme of, of judgment, and we've seen that over and over and over again. Uh, God's judgment is going to fall because of the people's sin. Um, when you get to chapter 40, there's, a, there's kind of a, 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 a switch that takes place, and you get uh, a different tone. It's a, it's a feel of, of hope and blessing starting in chapter 40 through 66. So there's this major division in the book. Now, this passages in the middle, those chapters in the middle, 36 through 39, are historical stories of the life of King Hezekiah. And they're a transition between those two. Uh, chapters 36 and 37 that we saw last week uh, kind of look back towards the, the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 35, because chapters 36 and 37 that we saw last week was this uh, time where the Assyrians were coming and they had surrounded Jerusalem. It was what God had warned in all those opening chapters. I'm going to judge you. Judgment's going to come. And the Assyrians did indeed come. And uh, uh, Hezekiah was the king, and he prayed fervently for uh, safety, for security. He prayed that God would intervene. And according to chapters 36 and 37, that's exactly what happened. God intervened and, and, and saved Jerusalem and spared His people, at least a remnant of them. But then we come to chapters 38 and 39, and instead of kind of looking back, they look ahead. And what Mike just read, or down in F3, what you just read down in Fellowship 3, then chapters 39, has this story of the Babylonians coming. Now, it historically took place in the life there of Isaiah, but it's anticipating something that is yet to come. You see, God did spare the Jewish people for about another hundred years. From the time Isaiah wrote this and Hezekiah uh, lived and Jerusalem and the temple were spared from the Assyrians, it didn't last. And about a hundred years later, Assyria was no longer the dominant power on the world scene. It was the Babylonian Empire. That wasn't seen when Isaiah wrote this, but a hundred years later, that's in fact what happened. Babylon was now the dominant world empire. And sure enough, just what we read here in uh, chapters uh, 39, 5 through 7, it is exactly what took place. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, the word of the Lord of hosts, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And your sons, and some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away. They'll become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. In 586 B.C., the entire people of Judah were taken away into captivity. Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, and true to this prophetic word, God did exactly what He said He was going to do. Now, that second 
half of the book of Isaiah, starting in chapters 40 through 66, anticipate that. Isaiah is writing prophetically to the people who are in that Babylonian captivity and are actually going to be released from that, are going to be coming back into their land. And so Isaiah is writing about events yet future to him, giving them hope, giving them encouragement, and chapter 40 begins with, comfort, oh comfort my people. Uh, next week, Dennis McNutt is going to be teaching on that uh, chapter, chapter 40, and uh, laying that out for us. Uh, but this morning, I want us to look at chapter 38. So go back to chapter 38. Chapter 38. How do you... How do you respond when you get the worst possible news you could ever get? I mean, how, how, is, how do we as believers in Jesus Christ, how do we respond when our world comes crashing in around us? Well, we get some examples, I think, from King Hezekiah this morning in chapter 38. Look at verse 1, and I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version, and there'll be differences in some of our translations, and I'll try to point that out. Verse 1 says, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you will not live. In those days, the king contracted a terminal illness. Now, in those days, we're not sure when that was, but I think I'm, my understanding is it would be in those days that we just read about where the Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem. It was bad enough for Hezekiah. He's trying to prepare his people. He's trying to refortify Jerusalem. You know, remember from last week, he dug that tunnel so they could get water supply, and he's preparing his people for a siege because the Assyrians are there. And somewhere during that whole time period, Hezekiah gets sick. And Isaiah comes to him and says, you're just not sick. You're going to die. You will not be spared from this. You will die. You wonder, you know, what else could go wrong for this guy? Well, look at verse 2 and 3. How did he respond? He turned his face to the wall, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, I beg you, how I've walked before you in truth and with a whole heart, and I've done what is good in your sight. And he wept bitterly. Now, let's not forget who this guy was. We saw this last week from 2 Kings. This is a guy who trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So that after him there was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. I mean, he stands out as a, as a great man of faith. Anybody after him, the kings after him, didn't hold a candle to the godliness of Hezekiah. Or before him, and we're talking about some giants of the faith, David and Solomon. This man clung to the Lord. He trusted in him. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And I think this is what I, I just love about this guy, Hezekiah. Um, there was something raw and real about his, 
his faith, his spirituality. There's just something so, um, so simple and real about him. He trusted the Lord. He clung to his, to his God, even through his tears, even through the agony. I mean, he had just been told, you have only so long to live. You're dying. Your, your hopes are dashed. Devastating news that he received. Impending death. It wasn't pretty. His response wasn't very sophisticated. You know, it wasn't very godly. He just turned his face to the wall. Isaiah's right here. Maybe his, the officials of his court. He just turns away and he wails to God. He just cries out to God. He wept, wept bitterly. Lord God, I, how? Why? Man, I've walked with you. I've trusted you. I've led this people in faith. I've walked in truth. Why? Now, in chapter 38, there's a poem that Hezekiah wrote that, where he recounts uh, this traumatic experience. So starting in verse 9, uh, he is, is, that, is that poem that he wrote, and I want us to go there and pick up this story, or at least get it filled in by Hezekiah's own words, his own reflection on it. It's a writing that says, verse 9, of Hezekiah the king of Judah after his illness and recovery. So there you hear the rest of the story. But verse 10, I said, in the middle of my life, or some of our translations say, in the prime of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I'm being robbed. Can you get the sense of disappointment, the sense of, of dread? I mean, indicators are that Hezekiah was maybe, I don't know, 39, 40 years old. I'm in the prime of my life. What's, wh wh where does this come from? I mean, I'm just minding my own business, uh, guarding my people, leading uh, in faith, preparing for the onslaught, crying out to you to save us from the Assyrians, and now I'm finding I have only a limited time left to live? I'm going to enter the gates of Sheol? I'm going to be robbed of the best years of my life? Verse 11, and I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I, I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My, my, my time's over. The sweetness of fellowship with God in the temple, of, of, of being among my people, of being the leader that they need me to be. Verse 12, like a like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He uses this imagery that the tent, the, the tent pegs of my life have been pulled up. My life is being just rolled up and, and discarded like an old tent. The, 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 the pattern on the, on the weaver's loom is being ripped off. It hasn't even been finished. And it's being taken down, being torn down, being ripped off the loom. He cuts me off from the loom from day until night. You make an, you make an end of me. Verse 13, I, I composed my soul until morning. The NIV says, I waited patiently. King James says, I considered. I thought this through. What was the end result? 
like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. And there's a sense, again, you, you get this, again, raw and real, visceral response of Hezekiah. He's, he's not, you know, color-coding this. He's he, he just honest. He said, God, you're like a, a ravenous lion. You're just tearing me apart, breaking my bones. There's a sense, I think, even of a, of a, of a divine hostility that Hezekiah feels. Maybe a sense of God's wrath, a lion. Verse 14, like a, like a swallow, like a crane, so I, I twitter. Some of our translations say I chattered. I moan like a dove. And again, this imagery of a, of a, of a, like a clucking hen or a, 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 a chirping, nervous, chirping little bird. It's like he's talking to himself. Why, why, why is this happening? I don't understand. God, I've done this all. I, I've lived for it. Why? I can't understand this is going on in my life. Why? And he's just like nervously in pain, chattering and groaning and moaning. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. They grow weak. They, they, they fail. I'm crying out to you. I'm looking to you, God, and I can't look anymore. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. The NIV says, come to my aid. The King James says, undertake for me. Help. Very real, very honest reflection. Now, God heard his prayer. Look at verse 4. Back in verse 4, you pick up the story. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and said, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will extend your, your life 15 years. I will deliver you, verse 6, and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Now, again, that verse 6 places this whole account back during that siege of Assyria. And so he says, I will spare your city, and I will spare you. I've heard your prayer. You've got 15 more years to live. Now, if we jump down to the end of the chapter, I, I, I'm not sure where 21 and 22, where that got written in there, but I think it fits right after verse 6. So look at verse 21 and 22. Isaiah said, well, let them take a cake of figs, or Isaiah said, let, uh, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. And then Hezekiah asked, well, what is a sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So whatever the illness was that Isaiah, uh, or that Hezekiah was afflicted with, we don't know. But Isaiah is saying there's some medicinal application here, and it was applied, and uh, he recovered. And Hezekiah is saying, you know, just, just for security purposes, can I have a sign? Again, I just, I just love the realness of Hezekiah. He was not a perfect person, as we'll see in just a moment. Um, but give me a sign. And so, 
verse 7 and 8, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, look, verse 8, I will cause the shadow on the stairway, which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz, to go back ten steps. So the sun's shadow went back ten steps on the stairway on which it had gone down. How's that for creativity from God? You want a sign? All right, I'll give you a sign. See the stairway of Ahaz? Ahaz was his father, and there was a stairway. And you know, as the shadow, as the sun set, the shadow, and it, it lengthened, and, and, and you could see it go down the stairway. And so God says, I'll give you a sign. Keep your eye on that stairway because count 10 back up. That's where the shadows go to. And all of a sudden, something happened. God in his miraculous power, the earth's rotation, whatever he did, the shadow went back up 10 steps. All right, Hezekiah, I'm sure he said, I got it. 15 more years. God gave him a sign. By the way, it says that sign took place on the stairway of Ahaz. We won't take the time to go back to chapter 7, the story of his father, Ahaz. But you may recall in chapter 7, it wasn't the Assyrians. It was uh, another threat that was coming against his father, Ahaz, who was a wicked king. He didn't trust God. And God tells Ahaz, ask yourself for a sign. Look, I'm going I'm to work. I'm going to... I'm going to work for you. I'm going, to, I'm going to fight for you. Ask yourself a sign. Make it as high as heaven or as, as low as the depths of the earth. Pick a sign, any sign, I'll do it. Just trust me. And Ahaz said in his wickedness and his unbelief, I don't need a sign. I can handle this. And here's his son, Hezekiah. Give me a sign on the stairway of Ahaz. And he got a sign. So Ahaz, or Hezekiah was healed. And we pick up in that poem, starting in verse 15, his thoughts on his healing. Look at verse 15. What shall I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I will wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. That New American Standard Translation, I think, is, is not a very good one. If you've got a, a NIV or King James, King James says, I will walk carefully. And the NIV says, I will walk humbly. And literally, that's the idea. I will walk deliberately, purposefully, intentionally, carefully. It's, it's, it's like a, a wedding and bridesmaids are walking up the, you know, up the aisle and they're walking deliberately, Carefully, intentionally. <laughs> That's the word that is used here. Being careful. He said, I'm going to live my life from now on with care, humbly, deliberately. Verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. What are the these things? And these that he's talking about. Well, back to verse 15 again. Verse 15 said, what shall I say? He has spoken to me. His word. I've heard from God. God has communicated to me. And it's his words. The words of God. These things, by these men live. The word of God. In all of these, the word of God is the life of my spirit. 
And then I think the last part of verse 16 is probably best translated, you will restore me or you have restored me to health and you have let me live. Verse 17, lo, for my own welfare, I had this great bitterness. The word welfare there is the word shalom, for my well-being, for my own welfare, for my, for my own peace. You did this for me. This bitterness that came to me, this, this trouble, this heartache, it, it was for my benefit. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. And again, I think the NIV and the King James have the better translation where it says, it inserts the concept of God's love. You lovingly, the word love is in the text. You lovingly kept me. It was your love that did this. Hezekiah is acknowledging, God, you cared for me. It was for my welfare, my well-being. Whatever, whatever it was that I was going through, you did it for me. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. I think that is an indicator that there was something going on in Hezekiah's life that God was probably judging him for. But he has cast all his sins behind his back. Verse 18, for Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to you, as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me. He will, so we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. Hezekiah was healed. There's probably something he did in his life that maybe brought this on. We don't know. I, Second Chronicles chapter 32 tells us Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, whatever that was referring to, but it says his heart was proud. And therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And so he turned his heart to the Lord and this, this, this crying out, this wailing, this repentant attitude. And God spared him, gave him 15 more years to praise his Holy One. Now, this is a story, this, was, this is unique to Hezekiah. Does God heal us today? Of course, certainly, many times. But this story is unique to Hezekiah. It was his life, his situation, whatever it was that God was doing in his life, it's simply a historical account that happened to Hezekiah. But I think there's some lessons we can learn from Hezekiah. Let me mention three of them this morning. First of all, no matter what the trouble, no matter what the sorrow is, we run, we run to our loving Heavenly Father and not away from Him. How do we respond when our world crashes in around us? How do we respond when we hear the worst possible news we could ever hear? Take a lesson from Hezekiah. Run to God. Don't run away from Him. In my pastoral work for 37 years, many times I've seen people that have gone through, that are going through incredible pain, all of a sudden stiff-arm God, and they just disappear. They're just, they're wounded, they're hurt, they're in pain, 
But instead of running to him, they're, they're running away from him. They're angry at God. And, and that's what I, I appreciate about Hezekiah. Again, there's just something raw and real about this guy. He turned his face to the wall away from all the people, and he didn't care what they were listening to. He just cried out. He wailed before God, but he was running to him. He was running to him. I think of the words that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul is writing to Roman believers. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it is certainly true of us that we are the children of God. We are His sons and daughters, where we have the right to call Him Papa, Abba, Father. And we run to Him, to His loving arms. We cry out to Him like a, a child does to their parent. Daddy! <laughs> Abba! Again, verse 17, you have loved my soul from the pit. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, reminds us that when we come to God, we need to come to Him like a child. This is what he wrote. God cheers when we come to Him with our wobbling, unsteady prayers. Jesus does not say, come unto me, all you who have learned how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I will give you rest. No, Jesus opens His arms to his needy children, and he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The criteria for coming to Jesus, he writes, is coming in weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. They come as they are, runny noses and all. You know, we get, I think sometimes we get just too sophisticated. You know, we, we talk tenor, and then when we come to church, we talk bass. God. Thou of great, awesome, sovereign majesty and the holiness that reigns above God. Help! He just wants us to pour our hearts out like kids. Because he cares for us. When I get so sophisticated and religious, good night, we're his children. We run to him in open arms and we pour our heart out to him. That's what Hezekiah did. He was the great king in the line of David. And he turned his face from them all and faced the wall and he just cried to the Lord. We run to him because he cares for us. Second of all, we rest in His care and the promises of His Word. We rest in His care. Again, back in verse 14 in his poem, Hezekiah could only cast himself upon, upon God. I am oppressed. Be my security. Run to, come to my aid. Undertake for me, O God. He had nowhere else to go. He was running to Him to find rest in Him. Verse 15 and 16, what shall I say then? He's spoken to me. O oh Lord, by these things we live. 
your words. I'm finding comfort in what you have said to me. So we rest in his care and in his word to us. Psalm 119. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your word has revived me. I have remembered your ordinances from old, O Lord, and comfort myself with your truth. Peter wrote in 1 Peter, casting all our anxiety upon him because he cares for us. He cares for us. I don't know what your view of God is. We all have one. We all have a concept of God shaped maybe by our growing up years. If you grew up in a Christian family, it's shaped maybe by how your father was. I, I don't know. But if you closed your eyes right now and I asked you, what is the picture of God in your mind? What, what image would, would pop into your head? How do you view God? We've often often here have quoted um, Tozer, who said, what a man thinks about God is the most important thing, most defining thing about us. Is he the loving Father that we run to and then find rest in his care? That we can cast our care, the word means to to literally throw something upon something else. It's like like taking a, a saddle and throwing it upon a horse. Do you take your cares and after biting your fingernails to the nub and sweating it out and getting an ulcer and everything else and worrying about life, finally saying, oh, gee whiz, I can throw this on God. Are we in the habit of of throwing our cares, our worries unto the Lord? Cast all your care upon Him. We rest in his sufficiency. By the way, in that passage in 1 Peter, in the context, you know what keeps us from doing that? It tells us pride. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Pride keeps us from doing that. Humility lets us throw it on to God. Which, by the way, is exactly what Hezekiah did. If he was at times prideful, which according to Second Chronicles that we just read, and the wrath of God came against him, I'll tell you what, there's no pride turning your face toward that wall and waiting like a baby when Isaiah and all the officials are watching you, and you just cry out to God. You just babble away. You run, you rest, and then you redeem the time. No matter how you look at it, life is short. It's precious. It needs to be used wisely for His glory. If we have five minutes left to live, we need to live it for His glory. If we have five hours left to live, we make those five hours count, folks. If you have five months to live, you make those five months count for His glory. If you have five years to live, if you have 50 years to live, you live it for Him, for His glory. 
What did Hezekiah learn back in verse 15 again? What shall I say? He has spoken to me. He's done it. I will walk carefully. I will walk deliberately, thoughtfully, intentionally. An examined life. I will live carefully. You've given me 15 more years, God. Hezekiah says, I'm going to be careful how I live it. I'm going to redeem the time. And for Hezekiah, what did that look like? Back in verse 19 and 20, it is the living who gives thanks to you. As I do today, the Father tells his sons about your faithfulness. I'm going to to live a thankful life. I'm going to live a life of praise, of, of adoration. It's a life of worship. We oftentimes say here, the worship service begins at 12. It's when we leave this room, when the worship service of life begins, because that's, that's when our life is being lived out in the, in the warp and woof of, of life at work, at school, in our communities. We can all come on the Lord's Day for an hour and a, and a half and, and kind of look spiritual, but the worship service begins when we leave here. A life that's lived for His honor, for His glory, in light of who He is, in light of His Word. And Hezekiah says, it is the living who give thanks to you. And I'm going to do that. Verse 20, the Lord will surely save me. We will, we will play my songs on string instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. It's a life lived for the glory of God in honor of Him. But notice what he also says. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. You see, second of all, it's just not a life lived worshipfully, you and God in harmony. It is a life dedicated to tell others. And it starts with our families. It starts with our families. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. Parents, are you, are you learning how to live in the midst of the trials and tribulations and the struggles of life, are you living it in a way that points to a sovereign, loving, gracious God and your kids watch and they learn about God how they watch you in the struggles of life? Grandparents, are you modeling that? Aunts and uncles, are you taking that little niece, that little nephew on your lap and you telling the story of God's faithfulness, of what it was like when you were lost and alone, of, of whatever experience of life, and you're, you're recounting to them, let me tell you what God has done for me. Are we telling the stories of God? What are we doing with our time with the next generation? Hezekiah says, I got 15 years, and I'm going to grab my kids, I'm going to put them on my lap, I'm going to tell them of the faithfulness of God. Are you doing that? You might not have 15 years. You might not have five. Redeem the time. Make the most of the opportunity. Tell them of a great God. Tell them the stories of God. This is what we're called to do. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. The King James translates it's redeeming the time because the days are evil. Make the most of the opportunity. And by the way, that word 
is the word to redeem. It means to buy back, to, to pay the price. It costs something to make use of the time to tell others, to impact a life. We've got an election coming up, and we oftentimes encourage people, go vote. That's our, our, our duty. But folks, that's the least we can do. It's just go and by yourself in a booth that no one sees and click whatever it is. You click and, and you know, voting for biblical values, and then you walk out, and no one is impacted. No one is the wiser, but do it anyway. That's our civic duty. But you know how you change a country? You know how we change a country and a world? You invite people to trust Jesus. <laughs> we impact a life by telling people about Jesus. That's how we change this country. Redeem the time. And he gives us this, Paul gives us this reason because the days are evil. It's just a, a simple statement of fact. You know, we look at our world today, we may view our times as times of economic uncertainty, and they, they probably are. We can view our, our, our times as times of, of national polarization and, and, and dangerous times, and they are. We can view our times as times of, of great international intrigue and, and tension, and they are. But the Apostle Paul says, you know what they really are? These are days of evil. The world lies in the grip of the, the evil one. These are evil days, evil days. And so what's the connection between living carefully and wisely in an evil age? Make the most of the opportunities to impact a life for Christ. Hezekiah says, I'm going to tell my kids. I'm going to tell the next generation. I want to impact a soul. I'm going to make the most of the opportunity. I want to live deliberately, meaningfully. I'm going to walk carefully. So in our day of trouble, when the world comes crashing in around us, we run to our loving Father. We rest in His care and in His Word. And we redeem the time. We live it wisely. Let me ask you three questions as we wrap up this morning. Three just quick questions to ponder. Here's one of them. Is there some unfinished business with God that we have to deal with today? Is there a sin that we need to confess, that we've just been coddling and playing with and nursing? Folks, there's not a, no one in this room is guaranteed that we're going to live tomorrow. Redeem the time. You got some business, you got to deal with God, then do it. Don't mess with God. Don't play fast and fancy with God. If there's something that the Holy Spirit of God has been dealing with your heart, and you know it, then deal with it today. Confess that sin. Is there a ministry He wants you to accomplish? He's been tugging at your heart, something that you know that 
that he, he wants you to do for his glory? Does he want you to be a part of light up the night? To connect with a, some other family in the church? Or, or does he want you to be a part of follow the star? Does he want you to, to volunteer at quarrels and be a tutor? Does he want you to bring a meal over to that sick neighbor and just tell him we're praying for you? and open the door of opportunity? Is there a ministry he wants you to accomplish? Redeem the time. Is there a friend he wants you to witness to? Is there a name that pops into your head that says, you know, I, I need to tell them about Jesus? Is there more grace that he wants you to experience that you just haven't appropriated it because you're, there's a bitterness in your heart? Hebrews tells us, don't don't walk away from the grace of God because of some root of bitterness that springs up. Second of all, question. Is there a promise from His Word that you have forgotten? You know, time in His Word is so valuable because you, you just never know when something you read and study today and even memorize today, three, four, five years from now, all of a sudden that pops up. The psalmist writes, how, how, how does a young man keep his way pure with God? He keeps it according to his word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I not sin against you. It's time spent in his word. It's, it's hearing from him. You have spoken to us, O God. This is his word to us. And he, it's alive. It speaks to us. Is there something you have forgotten? That in the midst of the trouble and the, and the pain of life, you can't rest in his care and his word because you have forgotten it. Do we need to refresh the word in our minds? Thirdly, is there some clutter in my life that is robbing my time rather than redeeming my time? You know, the synced campaign that we've been going through. You know, that, 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 that clutter of social media that clutter of the, the phone and, the, and all the time spent on the internet or the TV or my hobby or, or the computer games or you know, we provide out in the home center opportunities with these recipe cards, just ideas to how to unplug and, and get rid of some of the clutter of our life. Is there something that's causing me to not run to my God? not rest in his care or redeem my time. Let's take a lesson from Hezekiah. He wasn't perfect, but there was something so real and honest about this guy. It's a model for us. Would you bow your head, please? And just right now, as our heads are bowed, Maybe we can just ask you, O oh Father, to nudge us with your Holy Spirit. Just nudge us in the right direction of, of where you want us to go, where you want us to take this message today, Father. We haven't come, Father, I hope. We haven't come. Maybe we have, but we haven't come here to be entertained. Father, we come to be transformed. And whether we purposefully have come 
this morning to do that. That's your purpose. And so speak to our hearts, Father. Because as sure as we're sitting here this morning, at some point, at some time, we'll receive the worst news we could ever receive. When sorrows like sea billows roll, I pray, Father, that we will run to you and rest in your care and then redeem our time, making the most of every opportunity you give us to live for your glory. For, Father, you have purchased us with the blood of your Son. We have been bought with a price. May we proclaim your excellencies, declare your glory while we live in the land of the living. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.